Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello. Thanks for joining us today. You can follow us on Twitter at Next Track Cast. We also read your comments at thenexttrack.com. And we appreciate your reviews and ratings at Apple Podcasts or wherever else good reviews are left. So thank you very much. This is episode number 102 of The Next Track. We talk a lot on this show about listening to music, but sometimes it's better to not listen to music, don't you think? Well, yes, sometimes it's better not to listen to music. It can be good not to listen to music, not to listen with a purpose, you know, attentively. I listen to music generally critically. Listen to that chord change. Listen to the way he plays that sax. Why'd she sing those words? So if I'm not listening to music, I'm not compelled to perform all that busyness. So I think of music listening as an experience, but I don't think of the opposite of not listening to music as an experience, as an activity. You know what I mean? Well, in some ways it can, because you're cleansing your mind, you're cleansing your ears, you're turning off what sometimes becomes an endless stream of music that ends up becoming indistinguishable. Well, I think what I mean is, I don't look forward to a time when I'm not listening to music as an event. I don't think, oh boy, I'm not listening to music right now. Uh, if I'm not listening to music, then it's because I'm doing some other activity or there's no time to listen to music. And that is the activity that I'm engaged in. Well, you always have time. You can just put it on in the background. But since both of us tend to be people who aren't background music listeners that much, it is a bit different to say, okay, um, you're doing your spring cleaning today, as you told me before the show. You could put some music on really loud, but maybe you just don't want to because sometimes you want to focus on what you're doing. Right. Sometimes you just want a period of silence. But silence is not only interesting over a long period of time, say, not listening to music for a day or a week, but it's also interesting to intersperse silence with music. One of the most popular articles on my website, and I'll link to it in the show notes, obviously, is one in which I talk about using silence within iTunes playlists, and I give links to a number of silent MP3 files, 15 seconds, 30 seconds a minute, etc., and I'm constantly getting comments and emails from readers who are just so delighted to have found this. You get people who are teaching Pilates and they need to have silence after a song so people can take a break. Or someone who wrote me once, it's great for the music around my sermons to have these couple of minutes of silence in the playlist. Wedding playlists, people want to have silence. They want to have maybe three songs together and then they want to have a few minutes of silence without having to worry about pressing pause and play again. Yeah, I've heard from users as well who would prefer a longer duration between the tracks of an album or a playlist. And iTunes doesn't have a, I guess you would say, a control for the inverse of crossfade. That is, you can't set the duration of space between tracks. And as you say, that's often desirable, even just for aesthetic reasons. So I have an Apple script at my site called A Space Between, that lets you set a specific duration of seconds between tracks in a playlist. What happens is you start the script, you enter a number of seconds, and the script will play each track in the playlist. And as it does, it will wait the number of seconds that you entered before playing each track. I think this is something we got used to with long playing records, right? I think the space between the tracks on a record can be 
three to five seconds. It does vary. I guess it varied depending on how it was mastered. Yeah. On the radio, obviously, they don't want silence because if you switch to a radio station and it's silent, you're going to think there's something wrong and you'll press a different button. Let me tell you about silence at a radio station. When, when you get what's known as dead air at a radio station, everybody in the building panics because the program director wants to know why there's no music playing. The sales manager wants to know if his spots are going to play that he sold and that he doesn't want to make them good later because it gets to be a big hassle, a, a, an accounting nightmare. So dead air is one of those things that, that introduces primal fear and angst in anybody who works at a radio station. And it's really funny. You're right. You can't have silence on a radio station. You just can't. There's no, the music is segued. Most of the time they fade, they cross fade over each other. There's absolutely no room for silence on a, on a broadcast radio stream. Yet sometimes. I see what you did there. Sometimes silence can be interesting. Sometimes it's a pause that makes you think about what you've just listened to and what's coming next. And this is something I find a little bit annoying with radio is that you never have a break, that there's always this, it's like this constantly increasing wave that the next song raises the wave a little bit more and until you just get fatigued from all of this. I wonder how that evolved because I can't imagine that radio always was like that. I mean, back in the 30s and 40s when they were looking around for, for programming, you know, if they had live music, there would, of course, be a pause between the, the performances. But I guess when it, when it came time to record playing recorded stuff, uh, the space just seemed, I don't know. I, I You know, I think about it now. Unless I know that a radio station is playing an album or something, I certainly wouldn't expect there to be any space. No, and perhaps even in the early days of radio, the DJ would jump in as soon as the song finished, maybe because they didn't have the equipment to have double turntables, or I don't know how radio worked back then. They didn't have those carts that you mentioned in a recent episode about radio. You know, years ago here in Boston at WGBH, which is a non-commercial radio station, fairly well known, um, years ago their morning classical music show called Morning Pro Musica was famously hosted by the beloved Robert J. Lertzema. And he spoke very slowly and deliberately. That was... The Brandenburg Concerto, number three in G major, performed by the Academy of St. Martin's in the field, and, and so on. And not only did he use silent spaces while he was speaking, he also left a lot of silence hanging there after playing a piece from a record. And for a morning show, it was, it was wonderfully paced and relaxed. It's what we like to listen to in the morning. My father loved to listen to that every day. And in this case, the silence almost emphasized the non-silent parts. Well, when you think about classical music, you have to have silence in between movements. Not always. There are some, uh, the last two movements of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony flow into each other, as we would say, segue. There are others, but the majority of classical pieces have silence in between movements. And... When you go to a concert, obviously the silence is long enough for the final echo to decay, then for the orchestra to shift in their seats and turn pages and perhaps tune a little bit. Or if it's just, say, a solo pianist, long enough for him to adjust the stool and turn the pages on the score if he's using one. But it's always longer in concert than it is on a record. Some classical records have too little silence. 
as soon as the decay of the final chord has faded, it goes immediately into the next track. And I wonder if that's in part for radio. There are some record labels where there is more silence. And if I'm not mistaken, Bis Records, which is a Swedish label, tends to have more silence between movements than other labels. And, and, and I noticed this one some years ago. This is definitely intentional. This isn't an accident. You know, the person who's mastering, doing the final mastering of a record has to determine how much silence there is. And there's something about classical music where I want to have 10, 15 seconds at the end of a movement, because each movement generally has a sort of a resolution. And the next movement might be in a different key, and it's most likely in a different tempo. And, you know, there is some classical music that is designed to be more lively where you wouldn't want much silence, but there's a lot where you do want silence. The um, the interesting thing about that is that it's risky to add silence to a record album because it adds length to the side, which of course the more the more the more groove you have on a record, the the lower the fidelity will ultimately be, as we've discussed many times in the past. So it's interesting that they've decided to sacrifice. Well, I don't know. You say ten seconds or so between each song. That's well, this is on handful. CDs, where this isn't an issue. We're thinking back to the LP days. I'm not sure if that was the case. Yeah. Um, but on CDs, there's certainly more silence. Absolutely. Now, we can't talk about silence in classical music without talking about John Cage, can we? If someone has heard of John Cage at all, they probably have heard that he's the guy who wrote a piece of music that is four minutes and 33 seconds of silence. And, and this is weird. Because of licensing issues, we cannot play a recording of 433 nor can we perform it ourselves. That's kind of weird that we can't perform silence. Exactly. We could not do our own performance of 4 minutes and 33 seconds on this podcast. Now, we could do 4 minutes and 37 seconds. Yeah, because that would be a jam. That would be like a, a, a jam on 4 minutes 33. Well, that would be a deri- Well, would that technically be a derivative work? I don't know. Uh, it'd be a cover. If it's technically a cover, then you're paying for royalties. But if you did an alternate version with a different length, maybe you could get away with it. It's an interesting piece that Cage composed around 1947 and 48. This was the time he was working on some of his most important early works, the sonatas and interludes for prepared piano. And believe not long after that, he wrote his first string quartet. And it's actually a three-minute composition. It's not just four minutes and 33. It's four minutes and 33 of performance, plus the period in between the movements. So the original performance of this was in August 1952 by David Tudor, and this was in Woodstock, New York. And he sat down at the piano, and to mark the beginning of the piece, he closed the lid of the keyboard. And then he sat for the amount of time of the first movement, and then he opened it, and then shifted, adjusted his stool, and turned the page of the score, because there is a score. You can buy the score. I'll include an Amazon link in the show notes for anyone who wants it. And so he did this for the three movements. On the one hand, you can see this as a joke. And on another hand, it's an astounding conceptual work that says silence isn't silence. There's sound even in silence, and music can come from anything. Now, we we did a show with Laura Kuhn, who runs the John Cage Trust. I'll link to that in the show notes. And, And I recounted my meeting with John Cage in his apartment on West 18th Street. You can't have met John Cage in that apartment where he had these windows open that were sort of facing to 6th Avenue. You can't meet with John Cage and not hear the traffic noise and think, hmm, 
Okay. <laughs> and for him, the traffic was music. And, and it's like I was sitting in my garden this weekend, and we had the first wonderful days of spring with warm weather and sun, and sitting out there and just listening to the birds and the breezes and, and the chirping on one side, the woodpecker over here, the buzzard whistling as he circled over the fields. And it's not just that there is no such thing as silence. It's that the music of the world itself is interesting. And the silence that we impose isn't absolute. And we can appreciate that there's something going on beyond the silence. When I was in high school, I had a music teacher who frequently said that anything that wasn't silent can be understood as music. And I mean, well, when you're in high school, that's a pretty mind-blowing concept anyway. But I suppose so, because noises, sounds, cacophony, they have a sort of pitch and a perhaps a kind of tempo and attack, decay, sustain, release properties. But absolute silence, you know, I think I almost get nervous in very quiet places, like the dead air phenomenon I mentioned. It's, it's almost unpleasant. Uh, in more ways than one. Well, but there you're worried that the the transmitter might have died. Th there is no such thing as absolute silence. You can go into what's called an anechoic room, which is a room that's basically a padded cell. And John Cage famously went into one of these rooms, and he said that he heard a high-pitched tone and a low-pitched tone. And some engineer outside said, well, the high-pitched tone is your nervous system, and the low-pitched tone is your heartbeat. Unfortunately, this is wrong. The high-pitched tone is not your nervous system. Your nervous system does not make noise. Tinnitus makes noise. We both have tinnitus. We know about them high-pitched tones. And I'll try and find a link to put in the show notes. There was a doctor who determined that Cage's low-pitched noise was some sort of arterial condition that eventually may have led to his stroke 50 years later or whatever. But it can't be silent. You're breathing. Your heart is beating. So at a minimum, you're going to hear those things. We cannot experience silence unless we're deaf. And I don't even know if deaf people, I guess deaf people have true absolute silence. But if you're not born deaf, you can have tinnitus, yet not hear anything. It's pretty spooky. I suppose even if you lose your hearing, you still have memories of sounds, right? I guess if people have grown up listening to music and then they go deaf, they can get earworms. Oh, I don't think there's any getting rid of those. They thrive and live there in your brain. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> as, as far as non-music being music, I would like to just mention a piece of music that I particularly like. It is called Cantus Arcticus. It is a concerto for birds and orchestra. And it's composed by Aino Yohani Rotavara in 1972. And he made some tape recordings of birds near the Arctic Circle in Finland. And he composed around these bird sounds. It's really quite fascinating. Now we're out of the realm of silence, but the, the idea of the saying that any sound can be music, this is a really good example. Or John Cage's, all of John Cage's percussion work is any kind of sound. He would use anything and he would seek out the strangest sounds to play music. Just out of curiosity, the bird piece, when an orchestra performs it, do they have to use the original tapes? I'm assuming they do use the original tape because it's scored to time to the tape. So I'm guessing someone's dubbed the tape and digitized it so they have it available. But it's a good point because, yeah, it, it is scored to time with the birds. If they had a different tape, they would have to play differently. You know, speaking of birds and classical music, Robert Lertzema, the radio host I mentioned, he began every morning show with a recording of bird songs about five or six minutes just before 6 a.m. It was a nice transition. You know, you're talking about live performances 
for classical music, but imagine going to um, a jazz or a rock or a folk performance, and they paused for as long as they would on the record. So as soon as the song was done, they waited three seconds and they started again. And there you are in the audience going, what the heck is going on? Because you expect a certain amount of space between the live performance, the live performed songs. And I was imagining, you know, like a, going to a rock concert. And as soon as, you know, big finish, and then two seconds later, another song starts. Meanwhile, the audience is trying to figure out, should I applaud here? What is this? Is this all part of a big work? What? So it's really interesting that we, there's no silence. There's, there's a space between the two songs, but it's not silent. Um, but it is a duration that, that does take place between two big sounds, two performances of the song. And I thought that was really interesting because we've become accustomed to listening to song after song after song at home, but you go hear it performed and it's a whole different thing. It's a whole, you know, you have, you're expected to applaud or ray or bravo or, or whatever in between the song. But on a recording, you're not. Ideally, <laughs> a band funny. playing live would want to start the next song as soon as the audience is getting tired of applauding. Yeah. Right? You, you want to keep them wanting more. You don't want it to get silent while the band's fixing a broken guitar string. One of my favorite Who albums is the Live at Leeds album. And Pete Townsend spends an inordinate amount of stage time talking about what they're going to play next. He goes on about how it was written, what the song means, how high on the charts it got. And at some shows, they would even explain the entire plot of Tommy before they played it. I mean, I suppose it's okay if you're there. Uh, you know, sort of it's, it's sort of part of the performance. But on the recording, I mean, do I really want to hear all this stuff? I can think of two recordings that I've listened to in the past year or so that are like that. The first one is Jackson Brown, who recorded two solo acoustic live albums, 2005 and 2008. And it's song, discussion, song, discussion, song, 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 discussion, etc. So he's telling these stories about, you know, I was 16 years old and I wrote this song these days and Nico's recorded it and it became a hit. And this is really interesting the first time you listen to the record, but the second time you listen to the record, you don't want to listen to it again. And unfortunately, what happens is he'll be talking, and maybe 10 seconds before the end of the talking bit, he starts playing the guitar and picking a little bit, and then the talking track ends and the song track begins, so you can't just cut it out and skip it. And the other one is um, Bruce Springsteen. I purchased a concert, a live Bruce Springsteen concert, a while ago, because he did one solo acoustic tour after The Ghost of Tom Joad was released, so the March 19, 1996 concert in Belfast, Northern Ireland, is him on acoustic guitar, and he's telling some of the tales of the songs. And here, the stories that he's telling are part of the tracks. They're not separate tracks. But after I listened to it once, I didn't want to listen to it again. So I took a copy of all the files, and I edited them, and I cut out all the talk. And I think I saved about 20 minutes on what was a two-hour-plus concert. Wow. <laughs> That's funny, though, that you had to edit. You had to edit the boss. Well, but how many times can you listen to these same stories about it was a dark and stormy night in Asbury Park, New Jersey? I agree. There's another unfortunate result of CD programming that I, I frequently have a problem with. Here's an example. On the album Get Your Yaya's Out, which is a live album by the Rolling Stones, side one on the original LP 
ends with the song Midnight Rambler. The song ends, crowd cheers, the cheers fade. Side two opens with the crowd noise fading back up, and there's a woman in the audience shouting at Mick Jagger to play Paint It Black. She goes, Paint It Black, you devil. And the band starts to play the song Sympathy for the Devil. It's a cute little bit of programming there, right? Well, on the CD version, there is no fade between those two songs. And the bit where the woman is requesting Paint It Black is actually at the end of the previous track. So on a CD player or digital downloaded file or whatever, if you were to play Sympathy for the Devil, you would not hear that Paint It Black request intro. But to me, that's part of the song. But don't they do that for radio so that a DJ can cue up the song where the music starts? Because they may not want that intro. I assume that they always did it for anybody because you want the music to start right away. You don't want to hear the uh, extraneous stuff. I'm not sure. I don't know what the policy is. I mean, if there is one. (laughs) I don't know if there's a style guide for this. (laughs) Right, exactly. One good example, though, is the Bob Dylan May 1666 concert at the Manchester Free Trade Hall where just before, like a Rolling Stone, I think it was, someone yells out, Judas, because he had betrayed his acoustic origins. And he says, I don't believe you. And then he says to the band, play it effing loud. And boom, they really kick butt on that. And this video of this track, too. I can't imagine that being attached to the previous song and not attached to the song that they're really laying into. Exactly. And if you're listening to the full CD or the full record, you you don't get... you know, it just all runs together anyway. But if you're li- right, but it's when you stick it in a playlist or when it's on the radio or something. Exactly. So another time that silence is important is uh, going back to classical music. I like string quartets. I like piano sonatas, and often there will be two, sometimes even three, on a CD. Now, the idea of putting on a CD, and, and in particular, you know, let's say you've got a, a, a an eight CD set of Beethoven piano sonatas. The, the first CD is not necessarily going to be one and two. It might be one and three and four, and then two and five and six on the next one, something like that. I like to listen in order, which, okay, that's a little bit OCD. But I like to have some silence after a work when I'm listening to it. I don't like going from one into another without some sort of a pause. And very often on classical CDs, the amount of silence between movements is the same as the amount of silence between works. I would like 20 seconds between works. I would like the time. And so what I used to do is I would rip CDs and instead of tagging them as a CD, I would tag each individual work. Piano Sonata number 1 by whichever performer. That would be the album name for me. So when I wanted to listen to it, I would play that Piano Sonata and when it would get to the end, it would end and I would say, okay, do I want to listen to another one and move on? You know, there's another sort of imposed silence that we would experience with LP records. I kind of hinted at it earlier. And that's when one side of the record finished playing, and then you had to flip the record to hear the other side, like that Rolling Stones album I mentioned. There's a definite demarcation between the last song of the first side and the first song of the second side. I mean, that's how the record goes. That's how all records go. So you became used to hearing a batch of music, and then silence, flip the record, and then more songs. You don't get that with CDs or digital files. They just all run together. And there are lots of albums that we grew up listening to where that pause, that separation, is part of the album. So for laughs, I would sometimes in iTunes create individual playlists of each side of a record. So, for example, Exile on Main Street, another Stones album. 
is a double album, so I would create a four playlists that emulated the side order of the original LP. And when you play each side as a playlist, well, iTunes stops when the last track of a playlist is played because I wanted to experience that silence that occurred between the sides. But it was more than just silence. Oh, yeah. Well, you had to get up. You had to go to the turntable, lift the tone arm, or maybe you had an automatic changer, turn the record over, maybe use disc washer before you drop the needle. But even so, you still had work to do between the sides. You had to physically interact with the record. You know, the needle wasn't going to get to the other side of the record by itself. And so there was no way to avoid the intermission. You were compelled to experience it. Well, if you, if it was a double, if it was a two-disc set and you had a changer, you could play sides one and two, one after the other, but then you'd still have to flip for three and four. But, I mean, that's a good example. The, the end of side one is tumbling dice. You've got to have something happening between tumbling dice and Sweet Virginia at the beginning of side two. If they run with just three seconds in between them, it's just not right. That's not how the doesn't seem right. the album was conceived. And, you know, a lot of these records were conceived as a multi-movement work on a side. This isn't always the case, but I, I think some of the Stones records around that time are good examples of that. So sort of as an experiment, in order to recreate and re-experience that pause between the sides now in this digital era, I wrote a script for iTunes called Side Splitter. It will take a selection of tracks and allow you to demarcate the final song of each side on an album. And then it will create an individual playlist of each of those sides and then stick it in a playlist folder. And then, this is the fun part, then it will ask you if you want to play side one. And you click OK. And when the side one playlist has stopped, the script will ask if you want to play side two. Now, this is the point where you are compelled to stop what you're doing, get up from your comfy chair, head over to the computer, and click the OK button. Or to wait and make a cup of tea or coffee, or take a toilet break, or get a snack. It's your time. Do what you will with it. So the interesting thing about listening to a digital album divided up into these side playlists is that the sensation of experiencing an LP record returned. Tumbling Dice ended, and it's going to be a few seconds before Sweet Virginia begins. Sweet Virginia now becomes more emphasized. It's sort of a first song, too. It heralds the start of side two, just like when we used to listen to the LP album. It's an interesting sensation to be able to recover, you know? Again, the script is called Side Splitter. There'll be a link in the show notes, of course. Of course. So, you know, download it and try it. It's actually an amusing little thing to play with. And you get to hear the album as it was originally intended, if it's if it's actually from the pre-CD era, and I think pretty much any version of a recording uh, made available before the 90s would qualify. And I say the way they were originally intended because, you know, there were song order considerations and size and timing considerations that had to be made for LPs, which aren't necessary for digital products. Yeah, so I've been testing this for the past week, and, and I found it particularly interesting with albums like Miles Davis's Kind of Blue, where you're used to those first three songs, So What, Freddie Freeloader, and Blue and Green being on one side, and that the other two songs, all blues and flamenco sketches, are on the other side, if you grew up with the LP, obviously. And, and Kind of Blue is an interesting example, because I was telling you last week when we were talking about this, that when I listen to it, I don't listen to the bonus track. Kind of Blue is, is a great story, and I'd like to do an episode about this album one day, the first four songs were all first takes. So there were no outtakes. 
the last song, Flamenco Sketches, was the second take that they kept, so there's an outtake of it. So there's an alternate version. Now, jazz people like alternate versions. It's cool, but this is one of those albums that, for me, is crystallized in, uh, you know, 45 minutes, which is long for the time. The first side's 25, the second's about 20, and there's a certain rhythm to these 20, 25-minute sides. It seems to me that, okay, we're conditioned because of the length of the the records, but the the amount of music we can listen to and appreciate nonstop is 20 to 30 minutes. I I find that a 60-minute album, I kind of get lost after a half hour, and, and I have to kind of focus again. It's a little bit different if it's an opera or something where you have ups and downs, but that 20 to 25 minute period has something comfortable about it. Yeah, well, it's probably because we grew up listening to music in those sized chunks, you know? Well, that's what I said. We're conditioned in some ways, but we started listening with singles. Well, we started listening with the radio. So, you know, we have all these different conflicting ways of listening to music. Radio is nonstop. Singles are three minutes or four minutes, and then you have to flip them. And then there's albums, and then there's C- CDs. Again, 60 minutes is a lot of music. What are um, what are prepared playlists? About 25 songs or so, so that's about 90 minutes of music? They're, they're an hour to an hour and a half, generally. I'm assuming they're meant to be long enough to keep you interested and short enough so you don't get bored, so you get to the end of the playlist kind of things. I mean, if people put them on in the background, they won't notice you know, if they're working or studying or whatever, they won't notice how long it is. But silence is interesting. To insert silence in a playlist, to add that silence in between the the sides, in air quotes, of an album, I think we need to respect silence a bit more and realize that music is great, but silence is also important. As Claude Debussy once said, music is the silence between the notes. The previous space left intentionally silent. It is time now to present our next tracks. Kirk, what are you listening to? For my next track this week, I've picked something that uses a lot of silence. It's a recording by John Cage called Rio NG. He composed it in 1983. It's the name of a temple in Kyoto that he visited in 1962. And he noticed this is one of these temples with one of these Zen gardens with gravel and big stones, and there were 15 stones laid out. And he noticed this, and he felt that they were really relaxing. And he made a drawing tracing the outlines of the stones on paper, and he used some other elements like different types of pencils and all that in order to come up with the score for this work. And there's a great deal of silence throughout. There are bits of music and percussion, and then there's silence, and then there's something else, and then there's some voice, and then there's a long silence. And what I find interesting in this work is that you don't know when it ends. It's a, it's a, about an hour long in the recording that I'm going to link to. There are several different versions of different lengths. And as you're listening, if you're not looking at the duration on your CD player or your iPod or whatever, you can think, is it over yet? And then something comes back in. It, it's It's a sort of environmental sound. It's It's John Cage. It's not melodic music. But I find this to be a fascinating, truly fascinating piece of sound sculpture, as it were. Doug, are you going to pick something with silence, or are you just going to go for some serious blues guitar here? Not exactly. My next track this week is the first eponymous album by New York new wave band Polyrock. 
This album came out in 1980 and got some club and college radio airplay. I was such a collegian who played it at the time. And it sounded fairly typical of uh, synthy new wave dance pop that was coming out of New York. It was special, indeed. Don't get me wrong. Uh, the really cool kids liked it. But Polyrock had the additional cred of having Philip Glass as a producer. Now, if you listen to this album, I don't think you would have guessed that Philip Glass produced it. He also plays on it, but it's no Koyaanisqatsi, if you know what I mean. Polyrock does sound a little like early Talking Heads in that the instrumentation is minimal. It's generally upbeat. There are quirky vocals, more synth leads than guitar leads. And, and also another bonus, as I often like to qualify, this is a good sounding record. It sounds good on the hi-fi and it sounded good on the radio. Now, apparently it didn't get to CD for a number of years though. And so it kind of fell off my radar and I hadn't run across it in at least 25 years. So it, w it was refreshing to find it and hear it recently on Apple Music. And listening to it now, it's kind of surprising that they didn't catch on with a wider audience. They had quite a distinctive sound and personality. Polyrock only put out one other album and then broke up in 1982. But I, I think they can be considered an influence on later bands. You, you can detect a blueprint here. So this was a fun one to find and re-listen to after all these years. The first album by Polyrock, called Polyrock is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.